Clear Thinking Out Loud, written and narrated by Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge. Hi, I'm Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge and welcome to How to Work with Different Client Personality Types. Three tips to help practitioners see clients clearly no matter what they're like or whether you like them. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, people do not seem to realise that their opinion of the world is also a confession of character. So someone's opinion is often tells you more about what they're like than what they're expressing an opinion is like. And if you think about, you know, what kind of a person are you? What kind of people are around you? What are they like? What are you like? We never want to label people, but at the same time, understanding the type of person we're helping can give us a feel for what they need in their life. You know, there are certain types of people, and within those types, there's a huge uh, amount of room for individuality. Being a square peg in a round hole never works for anyone. So knowing what someone's fundamentally like and uh, really give us a blueprint for what they need in their life. Justin, a recent client, was gruff, bellicose, and generally disagreeable. And he, he didn't like people, he told me, uh, his responses to me were nothing personal, but he just doesn't like people, he just doesn't get on with people. So I tried not to take it personally. Not a client I could take to immediately, although at least I felt I knew where I stood with him. Uh, and that was a few paces away, if I'm honest. But we did manage some level of rapport, okay? And I'm happy that he had a happy outcome in, in cutting down excessive drinking, which is what he'd come to see me about. But it does beg the question, how do we relate to clients' differing personalities? And sometimes a personality can be quite extreme, quite strong. And of course it takes all sorts to make a world. You know, Yes, everyone is unique, but human beings are not so diverse that we can't recognize repeatable patterns within them. We know people are human beings, because they share, thing, uh, they share as much as they differ. So we sometimes meet clients who are so different to us that it's hard to relate to them. You know, occasionally we, we might be uh, confronted with someone who so sharply conflicts with our own massive conditionings, innate personality traits and hidden assumptions, that it's hard to feel any natural rapport with them, natural connection. You know, we, we might assume uh, their assumptions will match ours, you know, but shock horror they don't. Okay, and they really do see the world in a very different way to you. But extensive and sometimes painful experience has taught me something that I think is quite valuable. Sometimes we need to get out of our own way when treating people. We as practitioners, therapists, just need to relax and wait and see about someone. Okay. I had to relax and wait and see about Justin. It was very easy to take an instant dislike to him. He was very good at producing that response in people, but I had to wait and see. How else could I start to see what he was like and what his life was like? Okay. The worst thing we can do as practitioners or human beings is to assume that everyone shares the same perceptions that we do, or that, they, that if they don't, then they should do. You know, first off, let me share with you a very simple yet very useful way to think about human personality differences. So we need to think, think about how our balance of needs shape us. So what's great and clarifying about really appreciating the role of our primal emotional needs 
is that it helps you, helps us, better understand humanity. Although we all have similar emotional needs and physical needs, which is what makes us recognizably human, we have differing levels of drive for each need. It's these differing levels of motivation to meet a particular emotional need that define much of our personality and character differences. For example, a uh, reflective introvert will naturally have less inherent drive to meet the need for human interaction than a gregarious extrovert. Okay, these are two types of human being, two types of personality, and they have the same drive but different levels of motivation to meet that same drive. The need lives within them both, but for one its drive for completion is greater than for the other person. So a simple way to understand innate personality differences is to simply see how driven people are to meet their various emotional needs. Some people will be very driven to meet the need for attention. Some people will be somewhat driven, but not as driven. Okay. And for some people, a drive to intimacy is what life is all about. While for others, it's the drive to feel secure and safe or, uh, or, or the drive for adventure and challenge or uh, status. Okay. Rather than not so bothered about intimacy, but they want to meet the need for status more than other people do. Some thrive on chaos while, while others are driven towards order, neatness and sharp boundaries and categories and security. So, th so this brings us neatly back to personality type. We certainly shouldn't overly categorize people. To be diagnostic about it, we live in over-diagnostic times, okay, over-diagnosing times. But having a general sense that people do have different drives toward differing emotional needs really helps us not just to understand people better and to understand ourselves better, but to help them more effectively. So what about you? What are you like? What's important to you? In which kind of environments do you thrive? And what do you want to be? What's important to you in life? The difference between personality and character is one I think that often gets overlooked. My granddad used to say about folk in general, they don't make them like they used to. Okay, they don't make people like they used to. And I would sort of wonder about this idea. He meant, I think, that people seem to him to have less character or less fortitude or perseverance or determination or honour than in his day. Okay, and maybe he was right, I don't know. The people who make them were the people themselves. You know, people forged their own characters. Okay. So character is a bit different from personality. Personality is in, innate, but we grow our own characters. Whatever the veracity of this idea, it raises an interesting point. What is the difference between personality and character? Psychologists agree that your personality is a bunch of psychological attributes that you inherited and which persist over time. So for instance, um, innate proneness to go inward and access the imagination may manifest as excessive worry. You know, that's warriors are very good at going inward and uh, generating their imagination to cause them more worry. And it may do that for a time in a person's life, you know, so they might be excessive warriors for a time. But if the individual can become the master of, not the slave to, the habit of, of uh, misusing their imagination, then they can start to use it productively. They may adapt their natural 
propensity to go inward to create a template for a better life for themselves. Okay, they may, might become visionary in some ways. Okay, so the, the, the worry that they used to use their imagination for uh, is replaced with something more productive. Your personality is your natural collection of attributes, but your character is a selection of moral qualities and attitudes that you have developed for yourself. Character is that part of yourself that shows grit, that stands tall or not, and develops or not. Okay, character is at the heart of Roger Kipling's iconic poem, If. Okay. Um, personality consists of general fixed traits. Character is developable. Creativity may be a more or less fixed trait of personality. Okay. And at first a person may use creativity, the, the utilization of the imagination going inward, to worry or catastrophize. But as they develop as a human being, they may instead use it to create art artistically or to create goals to work towards. Okay, so it's the same general personality attribute, but they're using it in different ways as their character development dictates. Changing how a personality trait is applied may take character. Of course, being highly social creatures, it's too simplistic to just look at what we are like inwardly. We need to examine what we lead other people to believe we're like, okay, the front that we put on, okay. Adopting a persona to suit the setting is something that we all need to do to some extent. You know, most of us learn as we grow to adopt a persona sometimes. You know, two-year-olds or one-year-olds don't tend to do that. They don't tend to try to appear to be a nice person, okay. They are just authentic, for better or for worse. It's good to be authentic to some degree, but being authentic all the time would ruin us. We might feel that we need to seem concerned or interested or professional as though we're having a great and wonderful time when really we'd rather be kicking back and watching TV. You know, sometimes we will have to put on a bit of a persona and it's harder to put on this kind of act if we're depressed or if we're on the autistic spectrum as well. It's very hard to do that. But regardless of personality or character, by the time that we're adults, most of us have learned to present and keep up a face to the world, at least to some extent. Okay, so you know, we might be told to be authentic all the time, but my God, that would be obnoxious. And of course, some people will be more prone to putting on faces through a combination of inherent personality traits and learning. Some people really do get lost on, on the surface level. Okay, and we work out what the people around us seem to expect of us and we work out how we would like to be perceived and then we try to match our behavior and self-presentation to these imagined requirements. And we get quite good at it. This mask is known as our persona, which is Latin for mask. And this doesn't mean that we're all lying or pretending to be what we're not necessarily. Okay, we can still have some authenticity whilst um, making ourselves perhaps agreeable to other people. It's just that who you are is such a complex, multifaceted reality that it can't be easily or fully grasped in a simplistic sense. So we simplify ourselves so that people feel they know what they're dealing with. You know, there's some, you know, the you of yesterday will be something like the you of today and people can deal with that. We present those aspects of ourselves that fit the spectrum context that we're in. 
This is why we can appear so very different in, say, a work situation to how we appear at home with our family. Okay. We have different personas for those different situations to some extent. Both are part of who we are. We just leave aside the bits that aren't relevant or aren't wanted right now within this context. And this is a perfectly healthy behavior unless we get so attached to the particular persona that we come to believe that the mask, rather than being a socially useful constructor tool that we can put aside, is who we really are. Some clients might say things like, I just don't know who I am supposed to be anymore. Or they may report feeling terrified of what others might think or of them or have imposter syndrome, something like this. So they got trapped on the surface, the mask level, if you like. So what, according to current science, are the basic personality types? You know, but from the ancient Greek idea of different temperaments relating to the four humours, bodily fluids, which gave us the words sanguine, melancholic and phlegmatic, to Freudian developmental stages, you know, enneagrams, star signs, Myers-Briggs indicators and hundreds of other models of personality profiling uh, that have been popular, we, we are sort of awash with these theories. Okay, but currently the empirically driven Big Five Personality Trait Theory, or Five Factor Model, FFM, is popular within the field of psychology. So the Big Five are, firstly, openness. So this is being inventive and curious versus being consistent and cautious. You know, looking for changes, appreciation for art, emotion, adventure, unusual ideas, curiosity, and variety of experience. So someone can be more or less open. Conscientiousness, which is efficient, organized, versus easygoing and careless. A tendency to show self-discipline, act dutifully, and aim for achievement, and to exhibit planned rather than spontaneous behavior. Extraversion, which is um, someone who's outgoing and energetic, versus someone who's solitary and reserved. So an extrovert tends to have energy, uh, experience positive emotions quite easily, and they have surgency and a tendency to seek stimulation in the company of other people. Okay. Then we have agreeableness. Okay. So an agreeable person tends to be friendly, compassionate versus cold and unkind. You know, the tendency to be compassionate and cooperative rather than suspicious and antagonistic towards other people. Okay, they tend to smile very readily and uh, make you feel pretty good. Neuroticism, so sensitive nervousness versus secure confidence, a tendency to experience unpleasant emotions easily, such as anger, anxiety, depression, or vulnerability. Okay. And funnily enough, some of the, uh, what I've said here, some of these personality types look not entirely dissimilar to the ancient ideas of personality promoted two and a half thousand years ago, but things do like to go in full circle. So anyway, it's clear that many clients contain a blend of these characteristics and many people will have a clearly dominant feature. Our personalities are inescapable. They are who we are, but our personalities can trip us up. Diagnosing people with personality disorders is popular right now and certainly some people uh, or some people's personalities, I should say, do cause themselves and other people problems. Okay, someone's personality can be a problem to them and to people around them. An overly agreeable person may cause themselves problems by letting other people walk all over them.
or constantly worrying whether they've upset someone else. In turn, the consequence of being tightly focused on being agreeable may increase their degree of neuroticism. They may start to worry that they, um, uh, you know, that they've upset someone. So neuroticism and agreeableness can sometimes overlap. A highly neurotic person may develop an extreme degree of conscientiousness or agreeableness in order to try to stave off uh, the discomfort of, of, of negative emotions. And someone highly open to new experiences may get themselves into all kinds of problematic situations in life, okay? Because they're so open to new people and new experiences, uh, which is great in some ways, but can cause problems in others. So of course, characterization should take into account the blending of features. You know, natural tendencies may need to adapt to the reality of life. But sometimes it seems that it's who you are that's wrong for people. You know, some people are more self-obsessed or narcissistic, you know, some people are more timid or avoidant, okay. Some people are more emotionally sensitive or even dramatic, histrionic. So those are how they get labelled, okay. But these are natural differences in, in people uh, that don't necessarily warrant a label. There are many categories and subcategories of personality disorders in the psychiatric in the Psychiatric Bible, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. But when you get right down to it, people do just have differing personalities, some of which can leave us feeling frazzled. Okay. Categorization is only useful in so far as it helps us develop strategies to actually contain and allow for problematic behavior and its consequences. Okay, so just you know, giving someone a label isn't necessarily useful in and of itself unless it helps us do something else. Um, if it helps us devise strategies to help clients adapt and moderate themselves in order to help themselves and other people, then knowledge of, of what they're like uh, as a label can be helpful. The danger of branding someone as having a personality disorder is that it may come to feel like an immutable condition that can never alter or be brought to heal by the person with a troublesome personality. So we know people can change things about themselves and adapt and develop or use part of their personality for good rather than ill. But human beings, as we know, seem to be infinitely adaptable and all behavior is mutable over time. And let me share with you some therapeutic pointers that I found useful when taking personality types of clients into account. So number one, see beyond the snapshot of your client. The client we see before us is a snapshot, you know, we're not saying, we're not seeing them in all contexts. We might be getting them when they're depressed or angry or afraid or exhausted or shy or self-conscious. Okay, we're not getting them in the round, we're not seeing them in lots of different contexts, which is how you get to know someone. However real this snapshot is, and it might be realistic, it can only be part of who they are. This is why it's so important to ask clients about their wider life so you can access the resourceful parts that may not be on display when you meet them. You know, we need to get, and, and even then we're only getting the head take on their wider life. We get a sense of someone by seeing them in different contexts, when they're happier as well as when they're sadder or more afraid. You know, your client may only be eager to talk to you about when they're depressed and sad, but you might be quite surprised to hear about good stuff that's happened to them but that's important as well. So rather than ascertaining just how someone comes across to us during therapy, we can learn more about what they're like by listening to them, okay? And listening to what their wider life is like. 
what they've done in the past, uh, what they've been happy about in the past, what their interests are or have been in the past, uh, what their social life is like, and you know, listening out for statements such as, I used to be so spontaneous, or usually I'm, I'm energetic and outgoing, this, isn't, this just isn't like me. It's very valuable information. Okay, so what is like them? Or, or what, is, what are they really like? It's another way of asking that question. I could have been uh, forgiven for believing that Justin, who, who had a disagreeable personality, he was the first to admit, was just misanthropic. But occasionally he'd let slip times he'd helped other people. And decencies, almost obscured by time, but which were there nevertheless, part of who he really was as a person. Okay, That he did have a heart underneath this gruff exterior. We can also ask our clients what other people seem to think about them. Have others noticed a change in them? And if so, have they said anything? Um, you know, what, what, what are they like when they're not having the presenting problem? Okay, what do they seem to be like? What do other people notice in them before the problem started? Do we do this in, in order to, to um, utilize the next principle, which is principle number two, treat the personality. So we can tailor our therapy to fit what our client is like by drawing on their past experience and what that tells us about their general personality and character, and also on what they are like right now. For example, someone who's very driven and ambitious might want us, in the long term, to help them reach certain career goals, but in the short term to help them stop feeling constantly anxious so they can develop or regain the spare capacity to focus on the long-term goals again. We can, and even must, use a person's character and personality to help them thrive. And this links to the central psychotherapeutic principle of utilization. Sometimes clients may try to help you out by telling you what they're like or what they think they're like. You know, so they might say, I'm basically a coward or I don't really like people and they don't really like me or I'm not the sort of person that can do this and so forth. If someone has low self-esteem, they will, by definition, have an inaccurate take on what they really like as a person. That's the definition of, uh, of low self-esteem, is a misperception of what you're really like. If you tell me you're hopeless, I can take your sen sentiment at face value, but I can also suspect you're only giving me a small portion of what you are and could be like as a person. So what people say about themselves and what they are really like can be two different things. You know, people can adapt and develop sometimes to an amazing degree. You know, for example, Justin clearly wasn't naturally agreeable. You know, he didn't readily smile. I could see that not just in how he was with me, but in his tales of broken marriages and work spats and his rapidity in taking offense and seeing ill intent in other people. And this had been his way long before he'd started drinking heavily. So it seemed a stable attribute of his personality. But he was also open adventurous and curious and evidently he could be generous and thoughtful when he respected someone enough which granted wasn't very often so i connected to these traits within him in order to propel the therapy i encouraged him to see adapting his interpersonal style as an adventure okay because he was naturally adventurous and, and open as well as being disagreeable in some ways. We focused on externalizing the alcohol so that he could no longer uh, be pushed around by it. 
I framed it as a bully and he was a man who liked to stand up to bullies. So he was now motivated to stand up to the alcohol. I helped use his natural defensiveness and, and his talent for cynicism and assertion with others against the alcohol. He could now be cynical and assert towards and assertive with the alcohol itself. And there are certainly central principles or core skills to therapy, but it's how we apply those principles that need to fit with who the client is. That's the important thing. It's vital, I think, to be mindful that the big five personality types don't consist of better or worse features, just different. Okay, there's even a place for being neurotic in life sometimes. You know, they're only better or worse to the extent they relate to situations and circumstances. You know, they're only good or bad in context. Sometimes it's best to go inward and be reflective, while at other times being open and outgoing is a major boon. But we can all learn to have more of what we naturally have less of. You know, the ugly duckling in the uh, Hans Andersen's tale, Hans Christian Andersen's tale, was only ugly in one context. In another, it was beautiful. So principle number three, evoke the power within. Clients may assume you only want to know about their pathology. And of course, you do need to learn about what isn't working in their lives. Okay, and what's not working within them uh, to you know, cause problems in their lives. But you also need to learn about their healths, their strengths and their resources. To empower someone, you need to connect to the source of their power. That's what empowering is. It's finding where the power is and using it or helping them use it. If someone is open, they may have a high drive to uh, find novelty and adventure and a low threshold for boredom. But they're also likely to have energy and when they want real focus. Okay, when they when uh, find something that grabs their need for adventure, they can really focus. Someone who is intrinsically conscientious may have problems with spontaneity or be prone to the agonies of maladaptive perfectionism. But conscientiousness can also be a huge and powerful strength, and we know it's one of the biggest predictors of, of life success. Conscientious clients are more likely to carry out therapeutic tasks and engage with the, in the therapy with you. And once the propensity is controlled, it can be used as a consistent wind to carry the sails of the person's career and life in, toward wonderful, adventurous horizons. So conscientiousness is not just a boring thing, it can be like a superpower. Strengths can also be drawn and developed from a person's basic makeups, you know, so our differences are formed to some extent genetically, but also largely from experience. Life shapes us as surely as the sea shapes a pebble, okay? But unlike the pebble, we have some say in depicting how and to what extent life will shape us. We can also reshape ourselves and help others do the same. So I hope you found that useful. I'm Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge and if you'd like to subscribe to my email newsletter you can find it over at unk.com slash blog that's unk.com slash blog.